If you brought a Bible, go ahead and open it to Psalm 51. This would be page 474 in your hymn, or excuse me, in your pew Bible, not your hymnal. As you turn there, um, my name is Ryan Moore, one of the pastors on staff, so I haven't got a chance to meet you. would love an opportunity to do that after the service. This summer, we've been going through a summer series on the Psalms. Uh, as you see down the front of your bulletin, hearts open to God and how uh, the Psalms shape us and the, how the Psalms uh, give us this range of emotions for understanding uh, life here and, and how to respond appropriately to God um, and who He is. And so last week we started off uh, with Psalm 51, with the first half, and um, this morning we're going to stay in Psalm 51 and look at the second half. So with that in mind, would you give your attention again to the reading of God's Word from Psalm 51? To the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after David had gone into Bathsheba. Verse 1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness. O God, O God of my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. Amen. We pray for us and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning for a miracle. And by miracle, we pray that you would take sinful, hardened hearts and that you would soften them. Lord, that you would give us your spirit to do so, that we may leave here changed people. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Last week, as we dove into this song, we basically said and we saw that it was grace that makes us right with God. That it's grace that justifies us. And that grace has to be at the center of that justification of this psalm and see that it is grace that also sanctifies us as well. That until we receive this pardon which comes from grace, we can never really experience true repentance, which means we can never really change, which is also caused by grace as well. And so uh, three things there on your bulletin. We're just going to jump right in here. Um, 
You want to see how grace does this. How does grace keep Jesus at the center of our change, at the center of our lives? The second thing I want us to look at is what David asked for. And then third there, how David is made clean. So let's take that first one. How does grace do this? How does grace keep Jesus at the center of our change if we're really seeking to figure out and to learn how to change as people? Um, how do we repent? One, one phrase that you hear around our house, and I, I, this is, I think this is entirely you know, something, well, let me back up for a second. I credit this to Ada. I had to ask Ada about this earlier this week. She said she got it from somebody else, but she's the first person I ever heard say this, so I'm giving her the credit. Um, or, yeah, we'll see what you think. <laughs> but, um, one of the phrases that, that you hear around our house um, is this. You matter, but you're not the point. You matter, but you are not the point. When our kids are fighting, whining, or just being 100% selfish towards their other sisters and only thinking about themselves, Ada will say to them, you matter, but you are not the point. And I love that. I think that is awesome. What I don't love is when Ada turns to me and says, you matter, (laughs) but you're not the point. And, um, you know, we're 10 years into this. I'm not, I don't know how well I'm, I'm, she's slowly getting that I am the point, but that's another conversation for another day. (laughs) But I love it when she says it to our kids, right? Especially uh, when we look at our kids, we see... um, that there is an incredible need there, right? We, we, we have children, or if we you know, tend to anybody small, there's incredible need, and, and, and there's desire there. there. There's concerns and feelings that need to be acknowledged. It would be wrong for us uh, to, um, to not acknowledge those needs, right? To not acknowledge those concerns and those wants and those emotions. But it would be also wrong to leave them there and to say, that's all that matters, that, that you get to dictate life and everybody else's life based on how you feel and what you need. And the only thing that can get them, our girls especially, myself included, to get our eyes off ourselves is the point to something bigger. Right? It's the point to something that is the point beyond ourselves. But children just show us so clearly what is already present in our adult lives, don't they? We are people naturally bent inwards on ourselves. This is the cause of sin. Um, Something actually has to come from the outside of us. Something bigger in order to rescue us from ourselves. In order to stop us from living and believing as though we are the point. This is where David is at this point in, in the psalm. He is recognizing and realizing... That grace is something that points to something bigger outside of himself. And I'm going to go ahead and say that what grace points to ultimately, what it must point to, especially for us, is it must point to Jesus. And in that way, Jesus remains at the center of our change and at the center of our lives. Otherwise, everything else that we're doing, if we're not receiving grace to change, everything else is, is an act of pushing him out of the center of our life, which is to say that we matter and we are the point. For example, some of the ways that we think about this, I think, in Christian circles, maybe this is you, maybe you know someone like this, um, is we like to say things like, I got this, Jesus. Jesus, I got this. 
Right? We'd like to feel like we're at a point in our lives where we are um, mature Christians, mature believers, and we don't really need any more help. But when we say, I got this, or however you would put that, right, that is the moment that we are pushing Jesus from the center of our lives. That is the moment that we are pushing Jesus from the center of our change, and we are reclaiming that position for ourselves. And it could be for really, really good reasons. You know, maybe I'm finally going to say no to this particular sin in my life. And we should do that. We should say those things. But oftentimes in our attempt to put sin to death, our motives are still wrong. We might secretly be trying to justify ourselves in doing so. And ultimately to get to a place where our, in our lives where we can point to an area that we have fixed and say, that was me, I did that. I fixed my fill-in-the-blank. I turned this family around with my dedication and prayer and hard work. I built this company up from, from, you know, from nothing, and I provided for my family. Did you see the grades I got? Whatever it is, there's a part of us that's longing to point to something and say, that was me, I did this, and for what reason? Oftentimes, it's to justify ourselves. It's to make ourselves the point. And when we do that, what the Bible is saying, what David is showing us in the psalm is that our motives still haven't changed, which is really the point of real repentance. That our inward being would change, that our hearts would change, not our external behaviors. I got this theology, if you will, is not grace then. And because it's not grace, it does not have the power to change us. And when we don't allow grace to change us, what we are really saying, and this, is, this, this gets to the meat of this point, that these are the areas where I have ex- experienced success in my life. These are the areas that I no longer need the blood of Jesus. And this might be subtle. We, we might even realize that we're doing this. I'm not trying to come down heavy on the first point. Too late. We may not really believe or understand that we're doing this, but I, I'm reflecting on my own life, and I'm saying this to you all first. I know that for many of us in here, this becomes an extension of our Christian lives, what we think Christianity is all about. Christianity has to be about us getting to the point in the Christian life where we no longer need Jesus, where we have it all together. Isn't that what Jesus wants? I mean, when we think about in our lives, uh, and we've said this before, how can I go to God again over and over and over and over and over again for forgiveness? Why would he accept me this time? Right, what are we saying there? And I, like, I'm there, right? I'm there every day. But what we're saying is that we long to get to a point in our lives where we can point to the success that we're having spiritually and say, these are no longer the places where I need Jesus' blood. He must be happy with me now. And friends, this is the opposite of what David is crying out for when he cries for mercy. And it's not the place, and it's not the arena. It's not, it's not what the gospel is, and it's not how change comes about in our lives. I imagine that David, before he called for Bathsheba, was somewhere in this neck of the woods of his life. I got this. I'm okay. This is why I think at the end of the day, we, are, we hate grace. We love it, but we hate it. If we're honest, we hate it because it is always telling us that someone else is the point. Someone else 
matters more than we do. And most of our lives as Christians is spent fixing areas of our life in the name of Jesus, of course, so that we feel good about ourselves. This is really just sort of trying to manage our guilt. But really what we long for is to be able to point to something and say, this is the area of my life where I no longer need him because I have fixed it. I've done it. And all we have done at this point is force ourselves back into the center of our lives. And maybe we wave Jesus in at really crucial moments in our lives when we have uh, sinned externally. Maybe the culture really says this is a bad thing. Come on in here, Jesus. Get in here and help me out. Because I got this. I got this. What we have to begin seeing is that there is, not, that there is no greater insult, first of all, or manifestation of us spitting on the cross of Jesus than to look at the pierced hands of Jesus and say, no, 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 I got this. Thanks, though. And I'm saying this to myself because it is constantly my nature. It is where I want to go. I don't want to be dependent upon grace. I don't want to be dependent upon somebody else fixing me. But what else is it? How do I justify my own behavior, my own desires to go in and and fix myself while at the same time trying to make sense of a God who came in human form and bled for me? How insulting, right? Saying this to myself. This is what this means. Grace is the only thing that removes us from the center of our change and puts Jesus there, keeps Jesus there. You and I matter, but we are not the point. Jesus is, and this is how grace keeps him at the center of our lives and ultimately how he changes people. Now, let's see how David shows us this in Psalm 51. And this gets to the second point. What does David ask for? David asks for a lot of things in the psalm, but verse 10 dials us into the nature of what David is asking for, which is the nature of how he changes people. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. This word create is the Hebrew word for, well, it's barah. And and you read about this. It's the same word when we are reading, that we are reading, excuse me, when we open the first chapter of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What, What the God of the Bible does in Genesis 1, as the only true God can do, is he creates ex nihilo, out of nothing. Out of nothing. That's what God does. Out of nothing, he speaks and creates the heavens and the earth and everything in them. And here, David is actually appealing to God to do the same thing. But not with the external creation. This is where this is so different. But internally for him, it's his own heart that he's asking for, for God to create something new. To create something that isn't there right now. To create out of nothing. So let me unpack this a bit. And and do this first by saying, here's what David is not asking for. He's not saying, God, take what's there now, but just make it a little bit better. Right? Take what's there now, make it a little bit better. I admit I've made some mistakes. Can you just help me along a little bit more uh, in life? And, And, you know, then these big things won't really happen. And see, we, we do this too. We, we do it a little more subtly, I guess. But there's a part of us that begins to believe that, you know, if I just get the right education, right? If I just get the right theology, right? If I can just sort of like get more of that here, 
that can, that can fix me, can it? Right? That can move me in the right direction. It can make me better. Perhaps maybe it's money. Perhaps maybe it's just a certain type of status or approval of, 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 of life that you can get. But I want to recall, I want us to come back to the fact that this isn't some peasant at this point singing the psalm, writing the psalm. This is King David. Had a lot more money, had a lot more theology, a lot more education than probably all of us. Right? Nothing can fix our problems outside of a new creation. It is not about adding something to what already exists. At the same time, David isn't even asking for a second chance. He's not saying, okay, I blew it, I admit it, but I promise I can do better. Just give me one more chance. We said this last week, but David understands the weight of his sin here. It's, it's punishment, it's penalty, it's death. There's, there's no getting around this. This is Levitical law. And so it, it isn't as if he's asking just for, he knows he has no more chances. God's going to have to create something new. What David is saying is the only chance I have is if God does a work in my life like the one that he did before creation. The only chance I have is if God creates something out of nothing here. I need a new heart. I don't just need a second chance to do better. That won't work. And if you've been there and you've tried that, you know it doesn't work. Listen to what Derek Kidner, an Old Testament scholar, says about this. He says, with the word create, he, David, asked for nothing less than a miracle. He desires what only God can provide. That's how serious the problem is for David. And that is why grace is the only solution. Because friends, what you need, you cannot accomplish on your own. Which highlights how foolish it is when we refuse God's grace. Or when we try to work ourselves back into the center of our change. Grace is the dependency of all dependencies. God, only you can create like this. Only you can provide what is necessary to make me clean, to change me. Now I'm trusting on you to provide it. And it is absolutely where David is. And so here's the question. Are your prayers this big? I'm not sure mine are. Now that I think about it, now that I sort of get into what David is really asking for, are your prayers for your own soul, for the souls of your friends, your neighbors, your children, your families, are they this big? That God would literally create something out of nothing in them and in yourself. Because I have to be honest, mine aren't, which leads me to believe that I'm probably just trying to get God to add to something that's already there. Right. I already told you last week, I need Psalm, 2 Samuel 11, which is the story that prompted this psalm, because I think I'm better than David. And so my prayers have to be this big. I have to be praying for a miracle. Another question, is your patience this big with others? Because look, if we're asking this for ourselves, and this is, this is always the question in this topic, if we're asking for God to do this in ourselves, well, goodness gracious, 
What about other people? Are they not allowed the patience that we get as God creates something new in them? And this is how the church just does something new. All right, there's the way this grace is received. It's also given as well. And the world's never seen anything like it. God must create something new in us. If our prayers are not this big, then what we are saying is we don't really need the blood of Jesus. Nothing will keep Jesus at the center of your lives, at the center of your change, than recognizing that I need to be made into something new, something only Jesus can do. And keep coming back to verse 1. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. What does David ask for? A new creation, something only God can do. And then this gets to the final point, how David is made clean. How is David made clean? And you see there by blood, but not the blood of bulls. In David's cry for mercy, he asked for God in verse 2 to blot out, to wash, to cleanse him from his sin. All these words center around the same thing, and that is, make it as though my sin never happened. In other words, descend me. Okay? Notice he is not asking this for those he sinned against at this point. It is God he has sinned against and him only. We said this last week that sin is always more personal to God than it is to those who we sin against. It affects God first and worse, we said. At the same time, forgiveness must come from God first as well. Or else there can be no true forgiveness, no healing, no repentance, no change. So David is appealing to the highest court, if you will, to make this go away. But how? How, how, how does David envision his sin going away? How can it be blotted out? And verse 7 is the key here. Purge me with hyssop. Purge me with hyssop. What is hyssop? Is that a condiment you know, on the dinner table? I'm not sure. Hyssop is a small plant that because of its unique shape and design was often used as the actual brush that the Levitical law had in place to, to, to make sacrifices and to take that blood and to dip the brush in and then to throw it on whatever needed to be made clean. That's what hyssop is. Hyssop shows up for the first time in the Bible, surprise, surprise, in Exodus 12, 22, the Passover. It says, take a bunch of hyssop, which I like that. Take a bunch. You better believe I'm taking a bunch, right? Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel of the door and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. Hyssop is the brush that wipes the blood on the doorways so that Israel will be what passed over in God's judgment. In short, David is asking for that brush to be turned on himself. He's he's asking uh, for internal cleansing. The kind uh, that has its magnitude anchored in the Passover for Israel. Now, this has been carried along for generations in the Levitical law, of course, but there's always these marking points in history for Israel that, 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 that bring us back to what this is really about and what, what this is for. I mean, I'm sure many of you all can imagine at some point in time, uh, if you were living in this day and age as 
you know, as Jews, like, wait, why do we do this? Why do we sacrifice? And then somebody would tell you the story about this Passover event that happened in Egypt, and you'd be, wow, okay. David is asking for that brush to be turned in on himself. But here's where David is having to trust God, and I don't want you to miss this. He knows this blood that ultimately makes him clean has to come from something other than these bowls that he brings. It has to come from somewhere else. It has to come from some other sacrifice that God provides. That's what he's having to trust in in this very moment and for the rest of his life, that God will provide it. And I wonder for David if at some point in his writing of this psalm, if he begins to think about this old, 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 old story about his great, 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 great grandfather Isaac and how Isaac's father once took him up on a mountain to be sacrificed, but right at the last minute, God provided something else. God provided a way out, another way. And I wonder if for David that that story began to hit home at this point in his life in ways it never had before. When David says, purge me with hyssop, it's as if he is saying, God, I know it must come from you, but when will you provide the blood I need to be made clean? Because that is my only hope. And it's here that we can say, Where's Jesus in the Old Testament? He's right here in anticipation. David locates his forgiveness with the Passover in Egypt, which always anticipated and looked forward to an ultimate Passover, an ultimate sacrifice that would work, that God would provide. It would be better than all these other sacrifices. And it turns out King David is having to trust in the very same blood for forgiveness that you and I are trusting in this very day. This is what makes him clean. Hebrews 9, 15 and 22. Therefore, he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. How is David made clean? The same way that you and I are made clean. Jesus. The blood of Jesus You and I matter. Y'all matter. But we are not the point. Jesus is. And until we receive that grace in the form of forgiveness from God, until we know that we are truly clean, true repentance cannot happen. So let me apply all this for us as we think about repentance in our own lives. If you aren't convinced that you are truly pardoned, If you aren't convinced that you are truly forgiven, then your motives and your desires towards God and others will not change, even though your behaviors might. And this gets to what is fundamentally different about what the Christian faith is all about. Tim Chester, in his book, You Can Change, which I highly recommend on this topic, says that the essence of holiness, which is what the end game, right? End game of repentance. It's what the blood of Jesus does for us. The essence of holiness is not new behavior, activity, or disciplines. Holiness is new affections, new desires, and new motives that then lead to new behavior. It is a subtle 
subtle change. And this is why David says, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. What's sacrifice there? That's behavior. It's disciplines. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are what? A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. What's that? New motives, new affections, new, new desires, new be, which lead to new behavior. So if I don't believe, if I don't believe that I'm truly clean, if I don't believe that my justification, how I'm made right with God, is by His grace and His grace alone, then my motives for why I do anything are not clean either. They can't be. Why do I come to church? Why do I get involved in missions? Why do I help the poor? If I don't believe that I'm clean, then everything I do becomes an opportunity for me to justify myself to God. For me to, to say, hey, how about now? What do you think of me now? Did I merit your forgiveness? And those motives are wrong. And therefore, repentance is not happening. One of the clearest examples of this is seen in the parable that Jesus gives to Pharisees in um, Luke 15 called the prodigal son or the tale of two brothers. Um, and y'all are familiar with this, right? I don't go too much in the backstory of this parable. But the older brother, the older brother is what happens when our behaviors change but our hearts do not. In this case, the older brother doesn't think he needs to be pardoned. For anything, because he locates his sin only in his behavior. Which is why at the end of the parable, we hear him say, look, what does he say? These many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me fill in the blank. This is what happens to our hearts when our motives aren't changed. When grace isn't coming in to both justify us, make us right with God, but also to change us as well. The essence of holiness is not new behavior, activity, or disciplines. Holiness is new affections, new desires, new motives that lead to new behavior. And that can only come from a new creation that God gives us by his grace alone. But if I'm pardoned, if I walk in here believing that I'm whiter than snow, then everything I do, those new behaviors, right, What are those? Those are actions of gratitude, right? There's a desire to know God, to enter into relationship with him in ways that I never have before. Uh, There's motives now to love God, right? Which, what is all this pointing towards? Joy, which is absolutely the point of this, which is why David prays that that he would restore you what? The, The joy of my salvation. This isn't a joy that comes from, all right, finally I'm okay. I can go on about my life. This is a joy that has as its end game that I will be in eternal relationship with this father. That's the joy. That's what he is asking for. But none of this is possible if we don't believe that we have been descend by the blood of Jesus. So what are your motives? What are you really here? Why are you really here this morning? You know, is it to stop feeling guilty? Is it to please a parent? Or maybe just to look good in front of some girl? All reasons why I went to church, right? Because I need to say, look, none of our motives are 100%. They will never be 100% the side of glory. Don't, don't, don't go down that rabbit trail. But checking in on our, in on our motives, 
right? Checking in on our motives, why we do what we do, is a sure indication of how we are receiving the grace of God in our lives as both our justification, how we're made right, but also our sanctification, how we change as people. It's to locate Jesus at the center of that change and to never uh, to move further and further away from constantly trying to move ourselves into the center of that change. Another great question to ask is, when or what makes you angry? We touched on this a little bit uh, last week. But because your motives, because if your motives, excuse me, as a Christian are to try and to get right with God, then other people's change and growth bothers you. Just like it did with the older brother. The the words, this son of yours. He couldn't even name him for who he was. He's angry. See, either you see yourself as working harder than them. And therefore, why should they bear the fruit? Why should they have the peace? Or you find yourself saying, wow, maybe I'm not working hard enough. And so you go back to climbing. And as you climb, you begin to resent those that made you feel guilty about yourself in the first place. These are the pits of legalism and licentiousness. But coming back to grace and understanding how it works in our lives is the only place, only place that gives us freedom and peace and joy. Grace says to us, I didn't deserve it, but this is what I get anyway. And that allows me to be happy for others as they grow and as they change. And it actually becomes encouraging to me when I'm struggling instead of it discouraging me. This is why repentance can't happen unless we see ourselves as pardoned. And it's how our motives can tell us if we are living off of and out of the grace of God that pardons us. Tim Keller says, when the thing that most assures you of your value, which is God's love in Jesus, when the thing that most assures you of your value is the thing that most convicts you of your sin, God, you alone have I sinned, then your life will change. Then your life will change. Again, from Tim Chester, if you don't see your sin as completely pardoned, then your affections, desires, and motives will be wrong. You will aim to prove yourself. Your focus will be the consequences of your sin rather than hating the sin itself and desiring God in its place. And that, isn't that really the essence of what we're after when we talk about repentance? Isn't that the essence of what, G, of what David is after in this psalm? That, that we are getting to a place where we are hating our sin and desiring God in its place. So here's the million dollar question. When you sing this psalm, as David does, for God to wash you whiter than snow, do you own that? Do you really believe that's true of you because of grace? Because that's what it means to sing this psalm. This is not a I'll try harder next time song. It's not a give me another chance psalm either. It's a I've got nowhere else to go. And if grace ain't real, I don't have a prayer song. So when you sing this, do you, when, you, when you sing as David did to make me whiter as snow, do you own that? And that is my prayer for you. It's my prayer for myself. This means that if grace is real and David assures us that it is, then real change is possible. Real change is possible. 
Your motives, your affections, and desires are being recreated by the Holy Spirit into something beautiful for the purpose of experiencing the joys of your salvation. I'll end with this. Uh, This past Tuesday, uh, every Tuesday in the summer, in our neighborhood, we uh, are blessed with the old school ice cream truck that comes through the neighborhood with that catchy tune, right? I mean, the kids can sort of, they could be out back with like an automatic hammer breaking up concrete, but that tune gets through and they hear it. And uh, so we had missed a couple of Tuesdays, but this Tuesday we were, we, we had put it on the calendar. We were anticipating it and, and it was uh, finally here. And I actually happened to be over at a friend's house um, that evening. So I missed the ice cream truck. And that's not, so here's the point of the story. I'm, it's when I got home much later than the ice cream truck had been there. I got home past 10 and I walk into the house and I walk into uh, our, our room and just, Hey, Ada, I'm here. Um, it's me. And I say, Hey, how'd the ice cream truck go? And she gives me that look like every parent gives of, um, this is a disaster. They're not asleep. They're still awake. You know, just the ice cream truck was great, but we're, we're experiencing the effects of this. And I'm thinking, well, it can't be that bad, right? They're just, you know, it, and it's closer to 11 at this point. So I'm going to go, I'm just kind of go check on them. I'm going to go check on them, you know, tuck them in, give them a kiss. Surely they're asleep by now. And I go in there and the door is a little bit cracked. I just kind of move in there and I'm not like two or three feet in there. And then I'm just bombarded. These heads pop up out of nowhere. And immediately we're talking about the ice cream truck. We're talking about the ice cream that we got. This time it was chocolate and vanilla swirls. We had the rainbow sprinkles on top. Somebody got a slurping. Right? It was just, this was all that they could do. To not come out of their beds. And I, I mean, I'm just slowly backing up. I don't know what's about to happen. I think I shut the door and could still hear them in there talking about it. Just to go back to Ada and be like... Wow. And, you know, she's like, now I understand the look on her face. And by this time, come back to the room. They're still going at it. And we're talking about, I had to tell one to go to sleep thinking about what they're going to get next week. It's the only way to get her to calm down. (laughs) Here's the point. Here's what I want to leave you with. When something good comes into our life, it changes us. When something good comes into our life, it changes us. And I'm not using this illustration to objectify your change. All that's different for us. I'm using it to illustrate the joy that change brings. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. If an ice cream truck on a Tuesday night in Fort Worth, Texas can do that to three little girls. What about the cross of Jesus? His grace for all eternity for you. For me. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. When something good comes into our life, it changes us. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. I was taught something walking into that room Tuesday night. One, ice cream is apparently good. But two, I want what you have. That's what I left with. I want what you have. Will you show me how to get it? When something good comes into our lives, it changes our affections, our desires, our motives, everything about us. This is the beauty of we matter, but we are not the point. Jesus is. And may the grace of God keep Jesus at the center of our change, at the center of our lives. From now until the day that we receive new and perfect bodies, ones without stain or blemish. Amen. Let's pray.
Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray again for